Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by Sean Bloomgren and Andrew Penny, live from Central Iowa. On our show, we discuss all things agronomy, high yield management, and give you real-time updates on what we're seeing and hearing in the field. We'll gain industry, we'll gain insight from industry professionals as we bring you relevant and timely information on current agronomic practices. Welcome, Andrew. How are you today? Good today, Sean. How are you? Good. I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited to introduce our guest uh, and and uh, talk about the economy of ag. But we're going to kick the show off a little bit differently. We actually set up last week and forgot to announce it our uh, our email address. So we would invite you guys to engage us with us, whether that's on social media or through our show email address, a penny for your thoughts at gmail.com. Uh, Penny is spelled P-E-N-N-E-Y, the number four, your thoughts at gmail.com. So we'd love to have your ideas, whether that's questions on our current topic or whether you have ideas for show topics, we would love to engage. So we had a listener from South Dakota um, actually reach out and ask a question about respiration, respiration rates and the germination in kernels after they're run through a dryer. Um, essentially, does the does the germ or the embryo uh, is there risk of that uh, deterioration either being run through the dryer or um, being stored? Yeah. So it, it sounded like he was he was kind of wondering about whether or not respiration rates continue in, in corn kernels. You know, if, if you're storing it in a bin after you run it through your dryer. And so I did I did a little did a little research. Uh, I got some notes here that we can hopefully answer that question. So. So basically, if, if you're drying your corn uh, at 104 degrees Fahrenheit or above, that will kill the embryo um, permanently. You know, it basically denatures the proteins in the stored seed. Um, a, a good example would be frying an egg. Um, so, so basically, um, you, you will kill the germ, but you also got to remember that uh, seeds are very hygroscopic. And so they absorb and attract moisture from the air surrounding them. So, so a dead seed is actually going to, um, you know, still imbibe uh, moisture uh, up until around that 30% uh, mark. And so with that, um, you also got to remember that insects, um, you know, w- within that grain will also respire. And so, you know, you look at weevils and, and other insects uh, can live on and survive on the moisture within those seeds. And so you, re- you really got to dry that grain down below 10% before you start impacting in- insect survival. So, so there's still risk for hot spots, even though, you know, you, you can dry that corn and, and potentially kill that germ. But with that, you also got to remember that uh, 104 degrees time, temperature and humidity will also impact that. So, you know, the, the 104 degrees is a, is a good mark to hit. But also remember that the humidity when you're drying the seed and also the, the time that you're drying that seed is, is gonna impact whether or not that germ is killed. So, so it's a good benchmark, um, but uh, yeah, just remember that 104 degrees and then the length of time uh, drying down to that 15 or 16% is gonna impact that, that germ. So thank you for that question. Good yeah, question. Yeah, I appreciate it and would encourage any of our listeners to reach out. Uh, Andrew, go ahead and introduce our guest today. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about this guest. Um, you know, this egg inputs is a topic that I think I think we're all talking about right now. You know, the price of our commodities are are definitely higher than what we're used to in the past. And uh, I myself, inc- you know, myself included, I just don't have that much imp- you know knowledge on the on the background of some of our inputs. You know, how they're produced, where they come from. So so we're lucky enough to have uh, Professor Michael Langmeyer from the University of Purdue uh, on here to to discuss egg egg inputs. Michael, how you doing? Very good. 
Michael, give us um, give us a little bit of your background and your current role. Yes, I grew up on a farm in Nebraska, about 60 miles northwest of Omaha. My brother still farms. My sister uh, also farms about 60 miles north of where my brother farms. And, and went to, I got a couple of degrees at University of Nebraska-Lincoln, got a PhD at Purdue University in 1990. And then I spent 22 years at Kansas State uh, and came back out uh, to Purdue to work for the Center for Commercial Agriculture. Uh, in the center, we're primarily uh, involved in, in outreach uh, so giving presentations to, to farmers in Indiana and surrounding states. Uh, also do some some traveling overseas, uh, but we also do research and teach classes. How uh, how are the farms in Nebraska? It's very dry. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you guys probably know that. I've talked to some people. And so uh, hopefully the yields won't be too much below trend, but certainly the yields are going to be down considerably from last year and, and, and down considerably from the trend yield. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we, we greatly appreciate you being here. And we start our show anytime we have a guest with a question. Um, obviously, our goal is to talk about uh, economics of, of NPNK today. But before we do that, tell us what um, what's the one thing in agriculture you're the most excited about today? I'm actually going to cheat and do two things. Uh, <laughs> Fair the enough. First thing is, the first thing is I'm very bullish on production agriculture long term. Uh, simply because uh, we're going to we're going to we're going to need to increase production uh, in order to in order to feed more people, Absolutely. but also to uh, to uh, to provide better diets uh, to a, to a, a population that has higher per capita income. Uh, you know, you, you look at China and India, for example, uh, their per capita incomes continue to increase along with a lot of other parts of Asia uh, and, and parts of Africa. That's going to that's going to uh, cause a more demand for things like meat. Uh, you know, livestock livestock products, and so and so. I think there's a very bright future for for crop producers and livestock producers in the United States around the world. And so that's that's the first thing. The second thing that's really exciting is is this whole precision agriculture uh, technology movement. And and the thing about precision agriculture is I think it's going to be a definitely definitely a win win win. I think it's going to be positive for producers. It's going to increase efficiency, uh, 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 hopefully lower costs. Uh, and just be just being able to make better decisions, uh, but I think it's also going to be a, a win for the value <coughs> chain. Uh, this it's going to be a mechanism for the value chain to to get, provide some evidence of sustainability. Uh, you know, through this precision agriculture technology, this data that's being gathered, but also traceability. You know, traceability is a very important item for consumers, and and if we can help uh, trace back where the problems uh, uh, evolve, we can correct the problems in a more timely fashion. So I think it's positive for for the the value chain, but I think it's also positive for the environment. I, I don't think that's often discussed when we discuss precision agriculture, but I think it's definitely the case. Uh, when you can do a better job, for example, applying fertilizer and herbicides, that's gotta be very positive from an environmental standpoint. And just in my lifetime, that's one of the things that's really improved already. I think we do a much better job of, uh, of, uh, of applying the correct amount of fertilizers, particularly mm -hmm. manure. We do a much better job of manure than we used to yep. uh, 30 years ago, but also herbicides. It's not only because they're expensive. I just, th I just think uh, farmers are just doing a better job today uh, of using those inputs than they did 30 years ago. And, and part of that is the margin for error is, is, is just as low today, if not, uh, if, if not lower, uh, than it was 30 years ago. And so you have to do that in order to continue to be a, a producer. 
Well, I absolutely love your answer. And it's interesting because our guest last week um, had very similar thoughts around the economy of technology, but as it relates to really just stewarding the land well. And so I really appreciate that. I think when I first really started to get exposed to and study agriculture, production was around base caloric need, right? Like it was just how do we make sure there's enough sustenance for the world? And now, as you mentioned, as as the economy evolves and as we get to be more um, uh, more picky about our protein sources, you know, the, that changes the economy. It changes the consumer behavior and, and certainly sustainability and traceability are going to be critical in that food production. So you you might have just gotten yourself invited back on the show uh, for a future okay, segment around uh, yeah. uh, the economy of sustainability. But um, Andrew, uh, take us into a discussion about, um, about angut puts. Yeah, so uh, I, Michael, I figured we'd start just just uh, you know m- maybe breaking down the whole nitrogen, phosphorus, and, and potash discussion. You know, I, I think each one of those inputs th- there's a lot involved in in the background in the in the production. You know, wh- whether it's the, you know the processes of, of making the, the product or mining the product, and then and then moving the product from from the source to you know wherever you're shipping it to. There's just a lot involved, so so I figured we'd start with nitrogen. You know, that's that's probably the hot topic right now with the, you know, the, the price of nitrogen. So so let, let's open it up. Where where do we where does the U.S. source most of their anhydrous urea and 32 percent? Well, first of all, not all countries in the world use anhydrous. Uh, the United States and Canada are are, are two primary users of anhydrous. Uh, some of the other countries use other sources of nitrogen, so that's important to uh, important to note. But when it comes to nitrogen, the U.S. does produce uh, a vast majority of the nitrogen that's used uh, for the U.S. crop, and so that's certainly good news. Uh, the bad news when it comes to nitrogen uh, is 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 the fact that the price is much higher uh, than than it was uh, 18 months ago. Even even uh, looking uh, today, I, I did a chart looking at August 21 to August 22. In August 21, we already had seen some fairly large increases in hydrus. That started that started before August 21. Yep. But even looking at those 12 months, we're looking at a 55% higher in hydrus price. And, and so one of the things that's that's very important to uh, to understand when we start looking at corn production for next year uh, with respect to nitrogen, it was there, is there was quite a few producers uh, when they when they planted the 22 crop, purchased nitrogen before the run up. That's not going to be the case this time around. That's right. This time around, given several things that we can talk about, uh, you know, nitrogen prices are probably going to be high uh, for everybody uh, that, yep. that plants corn. And so it makes this decision of, of corn versus soybeans in the United States and the rest of the world much more difficult uh, because obviously uh, nitrogen is a very important input uh, for corn production. Absolutely. So, so with, with the discussion of nitrogen, Michael, you, you know, you mentioned that the U.S. produces most of the nitrogen that we use, right? So, we we have a lot of growers, depending on where you're at, that use anhydrous ammonia, you know, depending on on what their application process is. You know, some use urea, and, and then some use 32% and, and 28%. What what's the the biggest driver? You know, we have the you know the Haber Bosch process. It's a it's a very energy rich, you know, high high energy usage to to produce anhydrous ammonia. Um, when we start talking, you know, the costs associated with some of the nitrogen prices that we're seeing, what's what's the biggest driver for the increase in price that we're seeing now? There's two drivers of, of, of nitrogen price in general. I mean, there's there's a lot of other factors too, but the two major drivers are corn price 
So the demand side is, is very important to understand. Typically when corn price is higher, that increases nitrogen price because not only U.S. is looking at increasing corn production in that uh, circumstance, other countries are too. Uh, and it's a world market. Even though we produce a lot of the nitrogen, it is a world market. And so, and so certainly the corn price is a major factor. The other one, and, and you touched on that, natural gas is a very important factor. And natural gas prices are higher in the U.S., but just think of the Europe. Uh, situation. I was reading something earlier today uh, and yesterday where some of the nitrogen production in Europe uh, was slowed down already this last year because of high natural gas prices and now they have even higher natural gas prices and so what's that going to do to some of the production coming out of Europe but also in the United States? Uh, it, it's obviously going to create a situation where uh, nitrogen prices, at least from an anhydrous standpoint, are, are going to remain relatively high uh, for, for a few months here. Yeah. So, so you mentioned natural gas. Um, help, help me understand the, the price of natural gas and, and also the, the supply. Is, is that something that's going to impact the, the global trade market or is that going to impact us more in the United States? Well, certainly, it's it, all of these fuels are all these fuels are a world market, and so and so you you got to look at it more than the United States. That's why I brought the European Union in there. That's the two that's the two places I'm I'm really concerned about uh, the uh, increasing cost of production is European Union for obvious reasons because of the Ukraine Russia conflict, but also here. I mean, our gas prices is no secret. Our gas prices <laughs> have skyrocketed uh, during the last eighteen months. In fact, I I have a I have a figure on diesel, August 21 to August 22, it's increased 62 percent. Wow. Uh, and, and, so, and so, you know, diesel and other fuels are up substantially in the United States. And I go back to what I said earlier, you know, some of the producers were able to produce, uh, purchase the nitrogen before these run up. You know, this time around, uh, I, I, think, I, I think we're going to be stuck with some fairly high nitrogen prices because I just don't see natural gas or fuel prices in general declining substantially in the near future, uh, and even the extended future for that matter. And certainly corn prices look like they're going to remain high through 23, which is good news, but it does have an impact on, on, on the demand for nitrogen. Yeah, absolutely. So when, when we think about that high price of nitrogen tonnage right now, so to a farmer that's considering his options for booking, you know, fall booking, what, what, what's your advice to those, to those, uh, to those business owners? Yeah, the, 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 one of the issues that, that always occurs in, in years like 22 with a net farm income is, is relatively strong is there's always a temptation to be, to, uh, to, to buy some inputs, uh, in, in 22 for the 23 crop and, and, Take a look at fertilizer. I certainly wouldn't recommend buying all of your nitrogen uh, in, in the fall, but I, I think splitting, uh, splitting your purchases uh, uh, makes some sense. Uh, you know, get some locked in uh, at, at the prices this fall, and then uh, and then lock the rest in in the spring. I think that I think that uh, that makes some sense. I, I I think it's very dangerous to try to to speculate or guess whether prices are going to be lower this fall or this spring. I just don't see any reason why they would necessarily go up substantially in the spring or go down substantially in the spring. And so sure. that's kind of the way I, I would answer that is take a look at your tax situation. See if you need to buy some of the some of your fertilizer needs this fall uh, rather than next spring for the 23 crop. Uh, one of the things I do want to mention, make sure I, I uh, sure, uh, make sure I don't forget to mention this, is I think last 
last spring, uh, the, the high price of fertilizer uh, made some people switch from corn to soybeans. I think I, I really recommend that, that people really think through that very carefully moving into 23. And the reason why I say that is, is uh, corn price relative to soybean price is very strong right now. The market wants us to plant more corn, despite the fact that the stocks to use for soybeans are very, very tight. Uh, the, the market is really signaling right now that could change, but the market's really signaling right now that uh, we that it wants more corn acres. And so I think producers really need to look at the net returns for corn and soybeans. Don't just focus on the high cost of putting in the corn crop. I realize for a lot of producers, it's going to be over $1,000 per acre, $1,200 for some producers to put in a corn crop. Uh, you've got to look at the net returns. I mean, the, you look at the prices uh, in, in late 23, uh, corn prices are pretty strong. Uh, and, and, and right now, they're, they're, they're keeping right up with very high break-evens uh, that we're looking at for, for 23, at least, uh, uh, at least by tentative break-evens uh, uh, for 23. And so I did want to make that note is, is don't let these high uh, nitrogen prices scare you away from planting corn. I think it's a great call out. I know, you know, when you talk about your brother and sister's farm and, and the drought and being off trend line, and as you move across the corn belt, you know, there's areas of, of just really, really high yields. And then and then obviously a lot of areas have, have struggled with climate issues that have put a lot of pressure on crops. And so I think if you're in one of the areas where you're seeing some trend line or above yields, it's probably that, that nitrogen price is probably a lot easier to stomach. But if you're in a in a challenging environment it'd be really tricky to kind of just accept that price on the board and move on and 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 try and go do it again so yeah yeah the, one of the reasons why i talk about that a lot is is uh, indiana is a, a somewhat unique from other the other corn producing states we've had more soybeans than corn for the last six years now it's not substantially more soybean acres and corn but nevertheless we've had more soybeans than corn the last six years I really expect 23 to be more of a 50-50 year for us. Mm. That would be more typical for Indiana. Illinois usually is close to 50-50, slightly advantage of corn. But as you get to Iowa and Nebraska, as you guys know, uh, you know, there's more continuous corn. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and so really when I say, when I talk about this corn, I'm really, really focusing on the eastern corn belt uh, with that discussion so that people aren't, aren't thinking about <laughs> second, third year soybeans. Yeah. I really like the conversation too, you know, as we discuss how this impacts growers, you know, you look at the price of nitrogen, Sean and Mike, I think this is a really good year to have that discussion about being more efficient with our nitrogen application, right? You know, I think yeah. so many guys are used to just putting all their anhydrous or nitrogen on the fall or the spring where, you know, you're kind of left up to what mother nature dishes you, whether or not that nitrogen is going to be around when the plant needs it. So with the price, you know, this this is the perfect time to be having that conversation of maybe splitting up your nitrogen applications, you know, being more efficient with what you put on and, and saving saving yeah, some money and, there. And the split applications have become more common in the last few years. I think it's a good time to think about that. Yep. Uh, if you if you have the the labor and 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 the uh, the technology, uh, you know, related to that topic, it's a good time to think about that. You know, have uh, you know, applying some of your fertilizer in the spring, as you indicated. Uh, but also also doing split application uh, during the year so you can you can gauge whether you need more if it looks like the crop's going to be really good or slightly less if the crop's not going to be so good and i think that makes a lot of sense when you have high prices but you're right anytime an input price is high that's the time to really scrutinize what you've done in the past and and make tweaks 
Absolutely. Uh, do I need to change uh, what I've done in the past? And that's just as true with manure as it is with fertilizer. Oh yeah. I mean, yep. like I said, we've done a much better job with manure, but there's more. There's more that we could do uh, in, in terms of making sure that our, uh, in addition to our fertilizer, our manure uses is, is 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 very efficient. Yep. Now, obviously, with Iowa, that's a big deal because of all the swine and uh, poultry manure. Oh, absolutely. So, so I'm curious, Michael, as we talk about the the cost of nitrogen production in 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 usage. Do you see, or, or is there any difference now, or do you see any difference potentially in the future with the price between anhydrous 32% and urea? I don't, I, I don't really follow that as close as I probably would need to in order to make, in order to, to, to see if there's necessarily any, any changes uh, that, that may be occurring with respect to the relative prices. Uh, just doing the budgets here, I mean, some of my budgets use anhydrous, some of my budgets use the, use the dry or the liquid form. There doesn't seem to be any major uh, major differences with this price increase. Yep. Okay. Uh, making one crop relatively inefficient compared to another one because what because corn uses anhydrous and some other crop uses something else. And so I, I don't see that necessarily changing. Yeah. Does, does the, you know, there's a, you watch the news, it, it's hard not to... Um, you know, learn more about the the whole war going on with Russia and Ukraine. Is is anything there um, going to impact nitrogen supply production on a global scale? Yes, it does. That this is probably more so for 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 uh, countries other than the U.S. But in particular, uh, Brazil uh, and Argentina. Uh, uh, but, but but certainly Brazil is is more reliant on on fertilizer from Russia and Belarus. Uh, than the United States. Uh, when it comes to the United States, we, we do rely on Russia and Belarus for potassium. Uh, the other major sources of potassium are Morocco and Canada, with Canada being the largest supplier. But obviously, even if we don't buy potassium from Russia and Belarus, if there's export restrictions or, or something going on with respect to their exports of fertilizer, that's going to impact the world price. Uh, and and so we're going to be impacted by that. So, uh, but 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 luckily we're not we're not as dependent on imports for fertilizer in general, other than potassium. We we do rely very heavily for potassium uh, from an import standpoint, but we're not near as reliant on imports as countries like Brazil, Argentina, Canada. Yeah. So, without without meaning to you 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 kind of moved us into that potash conversation, and so unlike nitrogen uh we're heavy importers of our potassium R roughly what percent is coming from overseas i guess in canada <laughs> the, the vast majority <laughs> yeah you know, when you look at when you look at uh, you know as a major you know, look at the major global fertilizer supplier uh, you know less than 10 percent certainly and so and so we're very reliant uh, relying on potassium for other to other countries, we do we do get a lot of our potassium from Canada. Uh, Canada is the largest supplier of potassium uh, in the world, uh, and and so we we've got that going for us. There's not much distance not much distance to the the, the 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 largest supplier, but but yeah, we do rely for vast majority of our potassium uh, on other countries. And, so, and one of the things about potassium that's very important to keep in mind is the reason why uh, the war had such a large impact on that. It's a very, very concentrated industry. There's, you know, the, the top five countries uh, produce uh, three quarters, if not more, of the world's potassium. 
and so and, and and so that would be uh, that would be Canada, Russia, Belarus, China uh, would be the top four. And, and China is using a lot of their potassium for their own needs. Uh, and so if you take out Russia and Belarus, that leaves Canada and Morocco. Uh, and so you you get, that, you get the number of suppliers get, uh, goes down very very fast uh, if you're not importing uh, you know uh, potassium from Russia or Belarus. So that kind of you know that kind of leads to the question. I mean, obviously the 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 impact on current prices then would be global insecurity around availability, right? As you think, maybe maybe not as much about twenty the twenty three growing season, but maybe you know the next the next four to six years in terms of potassium access what kind of frame that conversation up what's what's the conversation there it, it's it, there's a lot of uncertainty there's a big band around what may happen there but but i really do think that uh uh you know the nitrogen will re will respond to to changing conditions maybe 24 25 in that time period if corn price declines and and, and maybe the gas prices aren't quite so high it would respond to that I don't see potassium really uh, responding that much uh, over the next several years because uh, you know because of the concentration and 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 even if this Russia-Ukraine conflict is resolved quickly, we're not going to be in good relations with Russia anytime soon. Uh, and you know, and Belarus is 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 really part of Russia, and so and so I see this being a lingering problem uh, for several years. Uh, and and uh, phosphorus is a little different. I mean, we do produce a lot of our own phosphorus, and so uh, and so I do think there's some hope down the road for, for maybe to have phosphorus prices come down a little bit. But potassium, I mean, you look at all three of those, I think there's the the, uh, the most probable that, that potassium is going to stay relatively high priced uh, for the foreseeable future. There's conversation around Michigan Potash and Salt Company starting to mine in um, Michigan. Are you familiar with that project a, a, aiming at, at 2025, I believe? I, I'm not real familiar with that, but but like I said, we, we produce so little potassium that that has to be positive, even if it's a small, even if it's relatively small. Yeah. Uh, anything we can do to, to increase our potassium production in the United States uh, will be positive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, as we continue this discussion, you, you kind of brought up phosphorus. So uh, where, where does the, the U.S. get most of its phosphorus from? Well, first of all, let's start with some of the largest, uh, largest producers of phosphorus, uh, China, U.S., India, Morocco, and Russia. And so we are a large producer of phosphorus, and so we're not all that dependent uh, on, on imports of phosphorus. But certainly uh, we would look at the other big suppliers, uh, China being one of those, uh, India being another one, uh, also also Morocco and, and, you know, and Russia. If you take Russia out of the equation, then you're looking at China, India, India or Morocco uh, as, as being potential sources uh, for, for phosphorus. And, and one of the things that hurt the, the fertilizer prices in general, when we started seeing these prices uh, skyrocket, uh, China was very leery to export any fertilizer. China is an extremely large uh, 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 user of all NP and K. Yep. Uh, when you look at per acre applications of fertilizer, particularly nitrogen, they have some of the highest application rates in the world. And so China is always worried about: Do I we have enough fertilizer? Uh, you know, for for the Chinese production, uh, and that 
and the fact that they were not as, as willing uh, to, to export fertilizer hurt prices short term. Now, if, if that, uh, that uh, kind of goes away here, uh, as conditions change, that certainly would help the phosphorus price in, in the world uh, if China started exporting more of that phosphorus. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I, and I'm not sure if this is a, an ag economist uh, question, but we have potassium and we have phosphorus in the United States. What, how much do we have? If, if we were to switch our, if we were to switch our efforts and say we don't want to rely on, on imported potassium and phosphorus, how much of that resource are we currently tapping? I, I think in, in terms of both nitrogen and phosphorus, uh, you, we're, we're, we're able to, we're able to, uh, uh, to, to supply 80, 90 percent. Uh, you know, that's, that's certainly feasible. When it comes to potassium, it's really small right now. And I just, even if that Michigan, uh, that Michigan production uh, becomes online, it's going to stay relatively small. Unfortunately, uh, when you look at potassium, uh, you know, potassium mines, it's so it's heavily, heavily concentrated in only a few countries, and and, and it's difficult to get around that. Yeah. Uh, and so you always hope as a uh, a large user of potassium like the U.S. Uh, is you always hope that we have good relations with all those countries. Does that process of mining ever really impact the price of, of what the end, end consumer would pay, or is it more all the middle stuff that, that really drastically Im impacts the price? I really couldn't answer that. I, I really don't know, uh, you know where, where, the, where the price uh, impacts are. I mean, certainly, uh, certainly when you see increases in, in demand, you're going to see increases at the, at the mine level, at the mining level. But also, uh, let's not kid ourselves, uh, you know, we, we're a ways away from some of these suppliers of these, uh, of these products. Uh, the transportation costs have increased dramatically since COVID. Yeah. Uh, so that's also contributed uh, to the higher prices. How, how, do, how does, you know, we, we've talked about NP and K somewhat separately. Where, where does, you know, our MAP and DAP tie in with this? Is that, what, what's, the, what's the relationship between all these individual uh, fertilizers? Uh, repeat the question. I didn't quite understand. Where, where, does, where does our, mono, you know, our MAP and DAP that, that many growers use fit in with, with all of these individual fertilizers? As oh, far the, the, the products? Yeah, yep. Yeah, certainly. I, I certainly when I, the my recommendation to producers really never changes there. I mean, they should look at they should look at multiple sources of nitrogen and phosphorus. Uh, look at anhydrous. Look at uh, you look at eighteen forty six O. Look at ten fifty two two O. Look at look at multiple sources and and pencil it out. Uh, you know, does it make more sense to, to purchase these mixed products uh, versus versus the single single products? And, and sometimes, you know, even sulfur is needed. There's maybe maybe there's some other kind of fertilizer with that sulfur. And so and so always always take a look at that. Uh, you know, this is just I, I, the, the analogy I like to use is when we look, put together feed rations, we take a look at all these ingredient prices and we do an optimal ration. This is the way I think uh, people that uh, produce corn, soybeans, and wheat need to think about this. This is all my possible sources of these products, and, and so let me take a look at it. Uh, because you go around the country, and the, these relationships are not necessarily fixed, because we may be closer or further away from where anhydrous is, 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 uh, is, is, uh, is, is produced and, and so on. And so, and so that's kind of my recommendation to growers is, is take a look at these different products and, and, and see which one fits into my, my operation. 
And anytime you can, uh, anytime you can put, fert, you know, ha, uh, eliminate a pass in the field, that's also positive. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. One of, one of the goals that Andrew and I have with the show, and I, I really appreciate the, the animal food, uh, uh, you know, kind of, kind of parallel there, because I think one of the things that we really hope for our growers that they would get out of these types of, um, shows would be just kind of to challenge the status quo. Let's actually sit down and think about what do we need to do to feed our plants appropriately, but also have ROI and high management kind of tied into that, you know, into that conversation. So I think that's really valuable. Yeah, yeah let me let me further that a little bit. Another, anal another analogy uh, related to that. When you look at increases in production over time in, in, in crop production and livestock production, uh, yes, Part of it is adopting technologies. That's certainly been very, very important. But there's a major chunk that's due to just do, just being better managers. Yeah. Uh, you know, just tweaking. You, 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 when you talk to really good managers, there's all they're always thinking about tweaking what they've done in the past. You know, making changes to what what they've done in the past. It's this whole idea that goes back to engineering of quality improvement. That's what I t t try to tell growers, and, and a lot of growers do this, but I'm just putting a, I'm putting a name on it and encouraging everybody to do it. That, you know, you don't, don't just think about what we've done in the past. How can we make, this, make it better? How can we use fertilizer more efficiently? How can we tweak our seeding rate and get, and get similar yields and lower our costs and, and go on and on and on uh, down these inputs? Because, because looking at the data, I've done a lot of work looking at differences in profitability among farms. It's not just adopting technologies. It's also just doing a better job with the little things. You know, make, just doing a little better job with, with, with the seed cost, just doing a little better job with the fertilizer makes a huge difference when you're talking thousands of acres. Yeah, I love, I love the idea of optimization, right? And sometimes that maybe means less, sometimes it means more, but, but really, really understanding the, the, the potential for changes or adopting practices that, that, that make our inputs um, both more predictable, but but used at higher rates. I think of strip till, right? I mean, and and is it is that feasible on every acre? I, I don't know, but is it worth a, is it worth thinking through as a grower? As we're talking about the high price, uh, you know, the importance of putting these products exactly where they're needed so they're efficient for the crop. Um, I, I I really appreciate that conversation. Um, as we think about the global market and, you know, we've talked a lot about imports specifically related to NP and K, do you have anything you'd share with our listeners just about um, the current state of corn and soybean export, exports um, with, with all the things going on globally? Yes, uh, there's actually been, been good news the last two or three years. I mean, we went through that really difficult period there, 18, 19, and 20, with respect to soybeans, but uh, things seem to be clicking again. And, and you know, when you look at the balance sheet for, for this next year, for the crop that, crop that we're currently harvesting, the exports are down a little bit, but we have to also remember that they're up substantially from what they were two or three years ago, and mm -hmm. so uh, particularly corn. And so uh, we're, in a really, we're in a good place right now. Uh, when it comes to exports, I mean, uh, one of the things that that's worth repeating is we are extremely competitive when it comes to producing corn. I, I don't think that's a surprising statement by anybody, but I actually have data to back that up. I'm part of an international benchmarking group, and and U.S. is a very efficient producer of corn and has been for years. But even soybeans, I mean, we always point to the fact that Brazil is increasing acreage, 
we, we, we're just as competitive as Brazil. The reason why Brazil is increasing acreage is the pie is getting bigger. The yeah. demand for soybeans worldwide is getting bigger because more animal production, more uh, people want more protein. Uh, and, and so that's a good thing uh, that Brazil is, is, is increasing acreage from a world uh, standpoint. Uh, and, 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 so that's the, and so I think that's very important uh, to note that. And, and uh, uh, as long as we stay competitive, uh, with the other countries in terms of cost of production, remain efficient. Uh, you know, we're we're gonna we're gonna be leaders when it comes to exporting corn, soybeans, and wheat. Is is there any concern, Michael, with the cost of shipping uh, grain overseas? You know, I just saw on the news this morning. I think I heard them say that the 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 cost per was it metric ton? I think they said was the highest it's ever been for for shipping grain. Is, is that of of any concern? It's, it's probably a bigger concern for corn than it is soybeans. And let me explain why. Uh, corn production is more uh, is, is spread out over more countries. And so, yeah, if shipping costs gets really high, you could see some regional changes in, in, in production, even if they're not as efficient as the U.S., and it still might make some sense. For example, before Russia got into this conflict with Ukraine, we were expecting Ukraine and Russia uh, to be much larger producers of corn. Uh, in the near future, but who knows where that's where that's heading? Uh, uh, but but it's, but 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 I do think that's definitely the case for corn because there's a lot of countries produce corn, not as good, not as not as efficient as U.S., but there's a lot of countries uh, produce corn. When it comes to soybeans, I think it's less of a concern. But I'm not an agronomist, but for whatever reason, there seems to be uh, there seems to be three or four countries that uh, where soybeans can be produced very very efficiently, and and the other countries less efficiently. Mm-hmm. And 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 I and I, and I actually have some benchmarking data coming out of the Ukraine on soybean production. They're just not as competitive uh, when it comes to uh, soybean production as U.S., Brazil, Argentina, and Paraguay and Uruguay. And so uh, and, and that may change. Uh, but at least that's where we stand right now. That that being the case, and the fact that the larger largest importer of soybeans by far is China. There's no country close to to China uh, that's that's a major soybean producer. And so, regardless whether the shipping costs are higher or not, they're still going to demand the soybeans from South America and North America. Let me talk a little bit about, uh, more about soybean production uh, in in, uh, in in China. Yep. If China could increase their soybean production. But it'd have to be at the expense of corn production, yep. and 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 they have not been willing to do that. Uh, it seems like they have a goal of being self-sufficient when it comes to wheat, corn, and corn, uh, knowing that they can't be self-sufficient in soybeans. And so, as long as they have that stance, they're just not going to be able to come close uh, to meeting the meeting the demand uh, for soybeans uh, that they have in China. They just don't have enough ground. The gap in yields is not big enough. Uh, for this to change anytime soon, I mean, the gap in yields is really closed between yeah. the you know the uh, the country the countries other than China and China, and so uh, and so I, I just don't see that changing anytime soon. Yeah. They're going to be very reliant on South America, North, South America, North America uh, for soybeans. Yeah, very interesting when you look at where the soybean came from, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So yeah, and, and, you know, and, and some people, some people in the soybean industry talk about talking going back 20, 30 years where we were, we were by far and away uh, the most important exporter of soybeans. That's all changed, but you got to remember that the pie is growing. Yeah, uh, you absolutely. Know, have, in the United States, we don't have the ability to to produce too much more soybeans than we currently are producing. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. We'll see 
And we're going to push that with the with the uh, with soybean oil prices being higher and and some bio uh, biofuel plants going in. Uh, you know, focusing on soybean oil, we're going to see how much acres we can put into soybeans. But we have limited ability uh, to increase acreage, and so it's going to take Brazil expanding acreage uh, in, in order to meet the demand, uh, yeah. the world demand for for soybeans. Like like I said, a couple times is growing. Yeah, and and so my my final question as as we wrap up the show, Michael, um, you look at the impact that the 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 strength of the American dollar has on on imports and exports. Is is that of any concern? And is there anything we should be thinking about with with the the strength of the American dollar right now? When we look at whether or not we want to be importing or exporting in any of these commodities. Yeah, that that's always a concern, but that that that's a concern that you can't do a lot about. Uh, the the dollar is going to remain strong because uh, I have a colleague here that that gives an analogy that I, I like to use when it comes to the U.S. dollar. Uh, it's not that our house is, is, is excellent or anything like that, that our house, when it comes to, the, comes to uh, monetary policy, is excellent, but we're the best, best house in a bad block. <laughs> and what I mean by that is the, is the financial concerns, the monetary policy is, is run amok uh, in, in European Union and some other countries. And so, and so that's why the dollar's strong. I just don't see that changing anytime soon. Particularly with with EU, they've got some tremendous they've got some tremendous struggles uh, going on right now. Particularly with the with the high energy prices, that it's really going to have a big impact on their economy. And uh, and, and so at least the the euro uh, is going to is, is is probably not going to be very strong anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I'm uh, I always feel blessed that I live in the uh, the house that I do. <laughs> We're lucky yes, people in a in a great place. Um, Michael, we, we finish our show, so our, our goal is to take all this information and to formulate it into an opportunity for our listeners to apply it. So um, Andrew Penny is our agronomist, so we call this segment of our show Cashing in Our Penny. Um, but what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do is I'm going to ask Andrew to give us three succinct takeaways from today's show, but I would certainly ask you to chime in um, uh, with, with Andrew's points um, and, and kind of give our listeners uh, the practical application. Yeah, so I, I know I learned a, a lot listening to you, Michael. I know I'll listen to this podcast probably three or four times and, and still take stuff away. Um, you know, I, I think my main takeaways today, um, I, I think one you mentioned, look, look at your net returns. You know, it's pretty easy to look at inputs and, and get overwhelmed with the price of some of the inputs on corn. But you got to remember, look at those net returns, right? It's, it's always about your return on investment and, and what you can get per acre and, and, and make overall, right? Mm-hmm. Um, two, look, look at, you know, you mentioned, look at a mix of products. You know, I, I think there are some that are so focused on anhydrous only or 32% only. Look at other products, you know, look at MAP, look at DAP, pr- price those out. Could, could you use different products to potentially be more efficient or, or, or bring your costs down? And then the third... Um, I think the big one, be, be more efficient. This was brought up numerous times uh, on the discussion, whether it's NP or K, and, and especially, you know, don't, don't apply everything at once. You, you know, know the risk. Is, is it leachable? Does it move in the soil? Can you split apply? Just, just be more efficient with, with your, your application. Anything to add, Michael? No, those sound excellent. <laughs> we, uh, I, I can't help but think as I listen to Andrew talk, you know, it, it, 
two things are true right now. Obviously, we have um, insecurity around pricing, but we also have commodity pricing that supports the opportunity to to really think well about about how we invest that dollar. And and so, um, Andrew, ap- appreciate that. That might be the. Uh, the most valuable penny I've cashed in. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I, in the I'm last definitely few weeks. getting better at taking notes. You know, here here I am. Most of these these podcasts, uh, I, I've just been in awe, listening and absorbing the information. And so I feel like there's been times where I've kind of got lost in that. And so now I'm getting a little bit better at paying attention and, and taking notes. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. It's been a challenge the last couple of years being being an economist because if you'd have told me that we could have break evens approaching six dollar corn. And we'd still be smiling about the net returns <laughs> uh, two, two, three years ago. I said, you're crazy. Yeah. Uh, but it, we, even with that, all that run-up in input costs, we still have, we still, for a lot of people, uh, have prices that are above the break-even. And, and so, uh, and, and so that's, that's, that's something to be very, very thankful for. Uh, that we were able to able to able to have all this inflation and still not have a situation where the returns were ugly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, it certainly is an incredible time in agriculture. And, and Michael, we really appreciate you joining us today. As as we get ready to sign off, if our listeners want access to you, um, give us the best way to contact you, social media, through the university. What's, what's your preference? Uh, I'll use a website, Center for Commercial Agriculture website. Uh, we have uh, all our outlook information, uh, crop budgets, uh, all, all the information that, 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 that we use from an extension standpoint is on that website, in addition to accessing our webinars and podcasts. Excellent. Michael, we appreciate it. Andrew, appreciate it. Um, uh, tell us, uh, Andrew, give us, give us our tease for our sign-off. Yeah, so uh, once again, we have an industry-leading expert. Uh, through our, our first recommendation we've got from, from a listener here, uh, they wanted to learn more about high yield in management in soybeans, You know what, what, what we can do to increase our yields. And so we have definitely the leading uh, expert on, on high, high yield management in soybeans from, uh, we'll, we'll tell you, the University of Wisconsin. Maybe give you a little hint. I like it. Along with that special guest, we're going to um, we're going to do some check-ins from around agriculture. Look at uh, kind of some yield reports and what people are, are seeing from around the countryside. So as always, we appreciate you tuning in to a penny for your thoughts. Thank you, guys. Thank you.